Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Line Poetry Podcast. In this episode, we talk to Christopher Kennedy, who is an amazing poet and the author of four full-length poetry collections. Um, He's also the 2011 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow for Poetry, and his work has appeared in places like Plowshares, Mississippi Review, Three Penny Review, and elsewhere as well. He is currently the director of the MFA program in creative writing at Syracuse University, and he also has a really lovely reading voice. I could listen to him read his poems all day long, Um, and we're really lucky to have him on this audio-based podcast where he reads several of his poems. When I first read Christopher's poems, what really struck me was the way in which he allows us to see the world in a very different, a little bit weird and surrealist, but beautiful way. And so we talk a little bit in this episode about how he developed his style and his process for writing a poem. So without further ado, here's Christopher Kennedy. Nothing moves me further away toward a mathematical horizon, completely abstract, like an oarless boat on a perfectly still body of endless water, as when you speak to me in the 50 languages of nowhere. Though I have no answer, everything tastes like snow, a mineral sulk on the tongue, the essence of winter locked in every molecule, the woolly mammoth kissing his bride a universe of ice embracing us, everything beautiful and breathtaking. Almost wandering, we finally arrive. We build our nests that turn to stone. We make a wheel of fire. Then someone invents the word for bread, then hoard, then empire. Look at us, we say. Then history begins. of your friends um, and colleagues who are poets have mentioned that your I guess your magical realism and the way that you access your subconscious is something that they really admire Um, and there's just I guess this surrealism that uh, kind of meanders through your poetry which is really cool Um, I'm gonna read one poem and then maybe we can use that as a jumping off point to talk about crafts and how you specifically make a poem and how it comes about. I wanted to read Ghosts in the Land of Skeletons. Um, So here it goes. Ghosts in the Land of Skeletons for Russell Edson. If not for flesh's pretty paint, we're just a bunch of skeletons working hard to deny the fact of bones. Teeth remind me that we die. That's why I never smile, except when looking at a picture of a ghost captured by a camera lens in a book about the paranormal. When someone takes a picture of a spirit, it gives me hope. I admire the ones who refuse to go away. Lovers scorned and criminals burned. I love the dead little girl who plays in her yard, a spectral game of hide and seek. It's the fact they don't know they're dead that appeals to me most. Like a man once said to me, do you ever feel like you're a ghost? Sure, I answered, every day. 
He laughed at that and disappeared. All I could think was he beat me to it. Um, so that's a really, really powerful poem. Uh, how did you, how did you come, how did you start that poem or how did you come across it? I had that title for a long time. I, and I think it was because I had, um, I'd heard somebody, um, speak the cliche of, you know, the, something like the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, um, and I thought, you know, you know, a ghost in the land of skeletons somehow would be, you know, a more powerful thing to be or a less powerful thing to be. And it just got, for some reason, that just stuck with me. And, um, and then I would, there are two aspects of the poem that came about. Um, one, just randomly, I was reading it, something about spectral photography. And there was a story about, a, you know, that somebody you know, was taking pictures and there was this little sort of ghost image of a girl in a front yard by a tree. And it was apparently there had been a little girl who lived in that yard who was killed um, near that tree. And, they, you know, people were randomly taking photographs, I guess, and seeing this sort of blur of light. And I just thought that was interesting. I mean, I don't know that I believe that that's what that was, but it was interesting that there was a connection between what this, you know, this image and the fact that there had been a little girl who lived there. Um, who had died. And then uh, the poet, Russell Edson, who was the prose poet who I knew most when I was first starting to write, the American prose poet I knew best, um, had come to give a reading at Syracuse. And he was such a quirky guy. He was just really funny and strange in a wonderful way. And we were at dinner afterward, and he turned to me and he said, do you ever, you know, think that you're a ghost or, you know, believe that you're a ghost? And I thought, wow, that's such a, I mean, how do you answer that question? <laughs> you know, I, and I just kind of said, yeah, I, you know, I do sometimes, I guess. And he just kind of nodded like, yeah, me too. And, and I think he meant it in relation to the fact that there were all these people around and he had sort of, you know, even he's the guest of honor, but he had kind of withdrawn from the, from the scene. And that I, I got the sense that that's how he was around people, you know, that he was very interior and not very comfortable, you know, interacting with people. So the little girl and the photograph and then his that question that just kept percolating and then I thought wow that actually relates to that title you know the ghost image and then I started to try to figure out a way to connect those two occurrences and the rest of it you know I I, I could make up a story about <laughs> you know how I managed to you know do that but I don't really know I mean it's just it's trial and error and a lot of times I, I'll splice things together I'll be working on something that seems completely unrelated and I'll just go, you know what, this isn't going anywhere, but I'll bet it would fit in here really well, and then see if that works, and just kind of hope that those, um, those leaps actually make sense in the poem, and do what I can to make that as uh, readable for, the, for somebody else as possible. And so this, did this poem kind of form as a whole, or did you have to... I guess, pull in different things at different points in the revision process. Yeah, I, I worked on that a long time uh, because I had, I, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew the two things I wanted to include, but I wasn't sure how to include, I didn't know how to make that leap from the little girl to the quote, or the Russell Edson quote at the end. Um, it took me a while to figure out. That. And then the idea of like teeth, you know, smile, a smile being what, whatever that image was again, I can't even remember what it was, but you know, that there's something about teeth sort of being like bones and reminding us that we die, you know, that a smile actually 
is in, in some ways a reminder of our mortality. Uh, once I got that, then I kind of knew where it was, how it was all going to connect. Mm-hmm. And why? Why was it that that line helped you? Was it because it helped you f- figure out what the poem was about, or? Yeah, because I didn't know. I mean, it, it was. I mean, it seemed kind of obvious that it was addressing some notion of an afterlife, but but I didn't want it to just be the cliche of is there life after death. I wanted it to be more about, I think, just the idea of, you know, we all deal with our mortality on a daily basis, and how do you make that into something more than just a kind of grim reminder, and you know, that it can be something that's maybe beautiful in some way, like the, the idea of the little girl still playing in the yard. Um, that was really touching to me. I mean, again, whether or not you believe it is almost irrelevant. It's just the idea of it that, you know, that maybe there is some aspect of us that remains and is a positive thing in the world. So, you know, I think it was just coming to terms with, I didn't want it to just be, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, that seems like, you know, too easy to me. Yeah. Um, and how did you come up with that line, Teeth Remind Me That We Die? Um, I think it had to do, I think actually, literally, uh, coming from a dentist appointment (laughs) and just thinking, boy, you know, I mean, it's like every six months I have to put myself through this, but I have, you know, and then it's like, yeah, it is kind of a weird reminder, you know, of our mortality that you have to kind of go and have your teeth cleaned and fixed and, you know, um, and yeah, a smile kind of represents that yeah. in a way. And that our teeth are all going to fall out at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's, you're, you're trying to prevent, you know, <laughs> pre- pre- prevent on realizing, oh my God, this is just another example of my mortality here. Um, but, I, you know, I, I wanted it to be somewhat humorous as well, I think. You know, I mean, not that it's maybe, you know, laugh out loud funny, but that there is something funny to the idea of a smile also having this sort of darker connotation. Right, and playful too, I think. Um, that's what I really like about it. I'm also really interested in endings of all things, and um, the ending to this poem is all I could think was he beat me to it. What do you think is important for an ending line, and how do you know when a poem is kind of, how do you land a poem, right? Yeah, that, oh, that's a really good I think that's, in some ways, just the hardest thing for me. And even that line, like even hearing you read it, like I thought you read that really beautifully. And when I got to that last, I was almost cringing at the last line because I was like, I still am not sure if I think that's the right way to end that poem. Um, and only because it's it sounds very uh, colloquial or ca- casual. It, you know, it's very, the, ver- the diction is very kind of low diction. And I wasn't sure if that was appropriate or not. And then I, I think I just decided that it, it was the best that I could do at the time, and then I never thought of anything better. <laughs> so I think that's ultimately my formula for figuring out when a poem is ready, is, you know, is done, is when I say to myself, I, I give up. I, there's just nothing better that I can think of than this. And, and you know, often that takes a long time, though, and a lot of different um, you know, attempts. Often I get to a last line, and then I change it and change it and change it and change it until I'm finally happy. Or at least, if not happy with it, at least... Um, convinced that it's the best I can do. So one of the things that you tend, I mean, we talked about this a little bit already, but you tend to take ordinary objects and ordinary things like say playing the guitar or like 
photographs or certain conversations that you have with people and then just leaping and taking that to a more magical or surrealist or just uh you know otherworldly place how i mean how do you i guess how do you make that leap and like what are you thinking of when you um when you're thinking of oh let's take this ordinary object and make it po or make it like give it a different perspective give it a different yeah i think that i think the trick for that for me at least is to try to write as literally as possible initially like just describe the object or just you know say something mundane about the object and then just keep doing that until you suddenly make the leap you know to to it being something more extraordinary um, that happens subconsciously I, I i mean that's something that i i hope i never figure out in a way because I, if i do i'll become self-conscious about it and probably won't be able to do it anymore but it's writing toward it it's you know it's like you can't i can't think toward it unless i'm writing toward it so if i start to write and, and it just can be just as mundane i i have a poem in uh i think it was in my last book maybe the book before where you know i wrote for i wrote like a three-page story and then the last paragraph ended up being the poem and the the two and a half pages leading up to it are just incredibly boring I mean, they're just not interesting on any level whatsoever but I got to the that last part and suddenly it got it became very interesting to me and I realized I didn't need any of the other stuff that was all just me writing you know my way toward this last paragraph so you know I I try to do that as much as possible just try to be open to that you know idea that what might seem mundane is actually something, you know, ultimately that's going to lead to something more interesting. I think it's really interesting that you said to write as literally as possible because I think when people sit down to write poetry, they try to be all flowery and try to be very, you know, opaque and all that uh, and original. And then you're kind of not getting at the truth, which is what, you know, art and poetry and everything is all about, right? It's all about getting at the truth of something. And if you're already removed, then I guess it's hard to see what that is. Yeah, I think, well, you get caught up in the idea of writing a poem with a capital P, right? Instead of just writing the thing that's most urgent for you to be writing about. <laughs> a lot of times all of that gets in the way. What do you think, um, what do you think makes prose poetry different from other poetry what can you do with a prose poem that you can't do with others well from you know one of the things that drew me to it originally is that you know it's obviously it, there's a lot of freedom because you're, you're not confined to you know worrying about line breaks and things like that but what i realized is that that's a, a kind of um an illusion because for it to be interesting you have to be able to make those same kinds of things happen that happen when you use line breaks and repetition and all the other things that you associate with um, you know with with a, a, a verse poem so for me it becomes things like punctuation and you know uh, how I set my margins for the poem I mean lots of things that hopefully are invisible to the reader but are really important to me sometimes it's, it's as simple as as simple as just um, you know counting syllables in a line or you know the kinds of things that you might do in another kind of poem anyway but not, it's like I don't want people to see that. I don't want them to recognize. I want them to be able to read very effortlessly through the poem. And then if anything is happening craft-wise, that it's not, maybe not as uh, available to them. And that they're really concentrating on what's being said. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And yeah, maybe it makes it more accessible to people who don't write, read poetry generally. They're, they don't feel like they're reading a poem per se. Yeah, it's intimidating. <laughs> I mean, it was intimidating to me. I remember, you know, reading poems in high school and just thinking, I don't get this at all. And, you know, and, and worrying about, am I going to have the right answer on the test or whatever for, you know, instead of just experiencing it. And I don't want people to feel that way. I want people to read it and just think, oh, I just read a paragraph and it was easy to read. And and then maybe if there's something that happens, you know, that's more profound than that, it hap- it sneaks up on them rather than just them feeling like they had to struggle to get to it. Right. I wanted to zoom in a little closer on the whole counting syllables thing. What's your process for that? Why? How? Uh, how do you make sure that you have the right syllables or the types of um, stress and unstress? Uh, in your sentences. Yeah, that, that tends to be more um, organic. And then it's after the fact, I look to see, and then if there's if I need to do any rearranging, I might do that. Um, but mostly it's just it's just developing an ear. I mean, one of the reasons why I learned to play guitar is I, wanted, I felt like, well, I can still get better at that. And if I learn an instrument, maybe that will help me you know, develop my ear better. And, I th- and it has. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's it's not so much that I'm consciously thinking, oh, I need to have ten syllables on this line or whatever. It's more just thinking, this seems like it's, you know, this is extended too far. This is not extended far enough, and I need to balance these things out, or I need to have some range. I need to have some variation, um, and that all becomes part of the the formal aspect of it, um, which you know people tend to think, well, with a prose poem there isn't really a form, and that's true. Um, it's not like a sonnet or a villanelle or something like that. But you, I think you can make it be formal in the same way. So it might be a little bit too early to plug this, but Christopher told me that his fifth full-length collection of poems, Clues from the Animal Kingdom, will be published in 2018. Um, if you're still listening to this podcast in 2018, or if you remember, uh, make a note to go get his book of poems because I know that they're going to be fabulous. Stick around also for the next couple of half episodes where Christopher reads a few more of his poems. Um, they're absolutely beautiful. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at American Haiku, and you can also drop me a line through email at Jenny at Jenny, letter J, Chen, C-H-E-N, dot com, and let me know how you like this episode and some suggestions for future poets to talk to. Great. Until next time. Bye. Thank you.